Welcome to Season 5 of the Shock Your Potential podcast with your host, best-selling author and international speaker, Michael Sherlock. The Shock Your Potential podcast is dedicated to entrepreneurs looking to up their game, increase their income, and scale their businesses to new heights. Shock Your Potential is a professional services company providing affordable services to small businesses, matching entrepreneurs with virtual assistants, and offering specialized leadership and sales training to companies around the world. Learn more today at shockyourpotential.com and listen in now to another motivating episode that will help you to shock your potential. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. I am your host, Michael Sherlock, and all month long, we are talking to some of my favorite people. Yes, you know what that means. It means authors. Why am I so fascinated by authors? Well, not just because I am one myself, but because I love the way that people who write and publish books think, not just about what they're trying to tell us, but about the things they want us to know and see and view in the world, or maybe a little bit into their own psyches as well. My guest today, you may probably know her name. You're definitely going to know the name of at least one of her books. Annette Simmons is a successful consultant and author of five books, including her most recent, Drinking from a Different Well, How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action. I can't wait to learn about that one. Now, she's had a solo career from, you know, a couple decades here with the success of her first book, which was called Territorial Games, Understanding and Ending Turf Wars at Work. And I know you can all relate to that. We've all been a part of it in some way, shape, or form, even if we didn't want to. That book was a deep examination of the micro behaviors that discourage things like hmm, truth-telling, information sharing, resource reallocation, you know, those things that keep us in our little silos so that we can maintain control. As a follow-up, Annette developed a facilitation guide called A Safe Place for Dangerous Truth. Oh, it was filled with tips for sharing truth in a safe way, as well as principles and tools to shift the truth-telling norms from one-on-one conversations and meetings. We all know that too. We don't always have the best communication in work situations, and sometimes that leads to some non-truths. Now, I think you're also going to know about a book called The Story Factor. Now, in this book of hers, she introduced the business use of storytelling and was named one of the, the 100 best business books of all times. Just think about that. And she also uh, had a a little uh, extra workbook along there. Whoever tells the best story wins. Now, all these, I know you're thinking, like, I know those books, or maybe I've read those books. Now we're going to dive into not only what she's doing today, but a little bit about why she does. And I can't wait to learn more. Annette, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, Annette, I know that we're going to cover a lot of things, but I also want to make sure that we weave through the story that you were telling right before we hit record, how your first book was uh, not only released by the AMA, American Management Association, but how that led to your first 40,000 books being sold, because I love it. But I hit some of the highlights of your bio, and you have a lot of great things in your background. But why do you do what you do? Tell us a little bit more about you, this, this urge to write and talk about these truths and how it helps us all to shock our potential. Well, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a social worker mm-hmm. um, and they got divorced when I was like 11. And my dad didn't know what to do with me on Tuesdays uh, <laughs> after I got out of school at three. And then we went to grandmother's house. And so because he's a social worker, he would give me these books to read 
that he thought would help me in life. Uh, transactional analysis, uh, rational emotive therapy. I, uh, he, he did a course on transcendental meditation and immediately turned around and taught me. I would have been a strange teenager anyway. <laughs> Um, but, but it started me on this lifelong quest of believing that if you just work hard enough, you can figure it out. Oh, yeah. um, and so there's so many things that people say, well, that'll never, never change. And that just was never satisfying to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, so daddy, you know, wanted me to go to law school. I didn't want to go to law school. And so I moved to Australia, um, uh, because that seemed like, <laughs> makes a, sense. you know, I was, I was. 22 years old and that was a solution so mm -hmm. but the thing is that, that the you know I'm, I'm from Shreveport Louisiana so I had a cultural you know uh, cone of silence around about growing growing up in Shreveport Louisiana pure American values didn't even know there was other parts of the world so I hit Australia and that's when I get my international cultural awareness workshop uh, and, and I had the Australians have a wonderful sense of humor. And so, mm -hmm. so, you know, it's sort of lovingly abusive, uh, but they, they disavowed me of the thing of, you know, thinking that, that you're supposed to always promote yourself because in America, it's the squeaky wheel gets grease. Well, in Australia, it's the tall poppy syndrome. Those who rise above the rest. So oh I began to, to, to realize that it depends on your narrative as mm -hmm. to what seems like the, the solution that you're looking at. Um, and so I went, I, I was at J. Walter Thompson. I went back to grad school. I came back to North Carolina to, in the United States. I found a great course on adult ed and psych because I'm continuing this idea that we can be our own therapists. Or mm -hmm. that a work team can actually, you know, figure out a way to tell the truth instead of after the meeting checking for feet and say, well, that's the biggest bunch of crap I've ever. <laughs> and, and I'm the one who was like, you guys, why don't we do something about it? And they're like, well, it's, you know, turf wars. And I'd say, well, let me figure out what a turf war is because it's only metaphors. They talk about uh, how the, the guy stabbed me in the back. And it's like, thankfully, mm -hmm. there's no blood. Um, <laughs> and, and so I asked people to tell me stories. And when you ask people to tell you stories of what actually happens, then mm -hmm. you get insight into, in this case, the 10 territorial games that people play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could write the book again today. We would, you, we would update it with social media games. Mm -hmm. um, trolling would certainly be in there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, intimidation was there from the beginning. And, and these are just a, a form of the competitive narrative that makes us think that we're in opposition when actually we could be working together. Mm -hmm. Um, and so after that, uh, I was hooked. I, uh, AMA decided to give away the book for the, the free membership gift that year. So like, yeah. like I said, I, I had 40,000 copies out there and, I would go into impasse situations um, where nobody else wanted to go in and figure out how to get these large groups who are being hijacked. You know, most of impasse situations, you have a small number of people who are hijacking the group. You right. have a majority that really just wants to do their job. Right. Um, and so I facilitated this form of dialogue and then eventually realized that storytelling was uh, the, the magic tool 
to help mm. someone to see uh, a situation uh, through another's eyes. And yeah. so collaboration, when we're, when we're trying to, to maximize our, our potential, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to combine somebody else's narrative with our narrative into a bigger picture that includes us both and probably our clients. That's a third narrative. Um, and understanding how if you have a single story, um, what happens is it, it, it creates blinders. You can't see it from somebody else's point of view. Right. And so I teach people how to build a bigger narrative. You may have heard of the, the um, metaphor of the five blind men, each holding, uh, you know, and arguing like you're crazy. Yeah. It's flat and leathery. No, you're, I'm touching it. I can tell you it's long like a snake. Well, if we don't learn how to tell our story and take someone on a little field trip right. about what we've seen, they can't see it. Right. And then we also have to learn how to, and very often you have to go on a field trip with their point of view first to earn mm -hmm. your right. Um, and so learning how to create collaborative narratives and work together um, and, and find, find opportunities that, that you just can't see when you're in silos. Um, yeah. That's been my passion. And so that's what I do. I love it so much. I've already taken a page and a half of notes. Um, I think one of the things that I try and encourage people to do is, especially with my with leaders that I'm developing, is, is along the lines very similar, but I don't use the same words that you do. But I do ask them, you know, when you ask people uh, more questions and you get them to describe, well, really what happened or what are you thinking? I call it unpacking. I love it through the story, though. You will find out some other things about that person. What has happened to them in the past? Why did that trigger them right now? Yeah. Is it really because, you know, they feel that that person is, I mean, is that other person really treating them badly in the workplace or did they have a reaction somewhere in the past where that was the same? So they've taken that story yeah. and they've taken their own story and put it into a new book and a new chapter. And therefore then it colors the rest of what's going on. Yeah. And sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not, but until you ask a lot of questions and try and understand where that person's coming from, it is very hard to change dynamics or to change work environments or to change expectations because we, we only hear our own story. We tell ourselves our own story over and over. And that's what, um, you know, fuels the, the turf wars, which of course in United States pol politics it just has just, just lost, people <laughs> lost their mind where, where they think they're on two sides of a paradox mm. that, that really can only be balanced, but they treat it like a conflict. And right. so we've got people treating safety, you know, like safety is number one, we have to take care and well, no freedom is number one. Well, as long as we're arguing from these polar opposites, we are, we are wasting the time we could be creating solutions. And exactly. so one of the things with storytelling is that, that safety and freedom are, are uh, uh, polarity. It, you, 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 if you dial down freedom, you sometimes dial up safety and vice versa. And so mm -hmm. the solutions are in the middle. And so the potential for creating novel, brilliant solutions is not going to be found in one ivory tower or the other ivory tower. It's going yep. to be found in the middle. And we have to destigmatize 
um, uh, what it looks like to, to be in the middle. You're going to laugh, um, and I don't know why this popped into my head, but as you're talking, especially about the ivory towers, and I, this is the only view there is, and this is the only view there is, I think about the Twix cookie commercial, to, or candy bar commercial, where they're like, we work for left Twix, and we work for right yeah. Twix, and what do you yeah. mean, we're the only good ones, and I'm like, you're both Twix. Yes, <laughs> we're, yes, we're all humans. Um, and, and there are certain paradoxes that, that, you know, because we've optimized this idea that you can solve metrically, um, uh, uh, about th measuring things, we've really screwed up, uh, not solving the things that just can't be measured. And yeah. paradox is something that, that if you measure it, it looks like you, you know, you have negative one and plus one, and it looks like zero, mm -hmm. but managing a paradox is about going back and forth and back and forth. And that is not zero, it's right. a deviation. And so helping people understand that these deviations um, are built into the natural order of things. Um, there's, you know, it's like, is, is it more important to take care of your individual or is it more important to take care of the group? Well, it's both. Right. Um, and so if you decide, you know, the hero story is the only story you're gonna tell, what you end up doing is taking care of yourself and not anybody else. Mm -hmm. And you will look around and find yourself really lonely after a while of doing that. Um, and because, you know, creating potential is, is almost always a function of building collaborative relationships with other people. Uh, and, and so helping people understand that, that this back and forth isn't wishy-washy. That's right. actually what it looks like when you're balancing, you know, a polarity. So one of the yeah, things a seesaw. Is, yeah, yeah, you have to find because you can end up with one down and the other one can never go down, you know, one up or whatever, or right. you can find a way where you're balanced, or you can have fun while you're going in. You can have fun too. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's you know, as we're talking about self-care, people are talking about how to take care of yourself. And I work myself to death. I don't know about you, but we're of the age group where, you know, uh mm -hmm. I, I I made myself sick. Uh, and I finally had to learn to balance. And for me, you know, learning how to have fun and play, uh, because, you know, my dad taught me how to work hard and, you know, um, that was the big, uh, aha for me. And it's, I'm so much better at doing my work now, now mm -hmm. that I know how to play and take time off. It is so important. I, I totally get it. I mean, I, I actually do, I did a thing for our YouTube channel. And I talked about, you know, uh, I think I called it work-life balance. What a joke. And not that it is a joke, but it, it always seemed like a joke. And I had three separate times in my career where I completely burned myself out. Yeah. There was nothing left, but that was what I thought I had to do. Yeah. And the day that I was, you know, somehow when I started learning meditation and mindfulness, all of a sudden one day I was like, well, good Lord, Sherlock. And if, if I call myself Sherlock, you know that I'm really in trouble. I'm like, good Lord, Sherlock. That's not what it has to be. It's not one or the other Yeah. because you can't, you're not even as effective as you could be when you're running yourself ragged thinking you got to work 70 to 80 hours a week. Yeah. But you it, also made can't, kind of, it made me mm -hmm. kind of bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> I might have been like that myself. Honey, a little bit. <laughs> I totally get it. Well, and I know we're going to take a break in a minute, but I, and this is going to be a big question. But you know, I look at I look at our political landscape today, and I I mean, I won't even discuss politics with anybody because number one, 
I'm kind of one of those people who likes to see lots of different things from both sides. And, but that's even dangerous because if you're like, well, I can see how you can believe in this and I can see how you believe in that. And my, you know, people who, you know, I might interact with that believe very strongly of this or that. And that's what I'm like, talking about. The solutions are in the middle. Mm-hmm. And yet, and we get torpedoed by, by both extremes because we're talking about, you know, let's, let's dial it, you know, one way or the other. Let's understand these are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, exactly. And then we can actually have dialogues where we might find solutions. I'm hoping that as a society, we're getting closer to that. I feel like maybe we're getting, there's some positive change happening in some people where they want to listen actually to the other side, quote unquote, but uh, I don't, we've got a long way to go to, to repair this. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsor for the month and we will be right back. Do you want to be a go-to expert that news reporters, anchors, and media producers turn to? Are you a media professional looking for credible, reliable, and timely guests? If you answered yes to either of those questions, then shock your media potential is for you. This one-of-a-kind platform connects vetted experts with news professionals around the globe. As a part of our launch celebration, you can participate for free in our Shock Your Media Potential virtual conference running March 28th through April 1st. Together with my co-host, Eddie Luisi, known as stage manager to the stars and also stage manager for Good Morning America, we have interviewed 25 media personalities and professionals to ask them the questions you need to know the answers to. Like, how can I make myself more newsworthy? How do I best pitch a story? How do I get invited back again and again? And much more. Some of our guests are household names with exceptional on-camera careers. Others are award-winning directors, producers, camera operators, audio engineers, celebrity hair and makeup professionals, and so much more. To learn more about our platform and our conference today, Go to shockyourmediapotential.com. And we are back with Annette Simmons, and we are talking about all things communication, how maybe we can communicate a little better, maybe find ourselves a little bit more in the middle, not a left or a right, but you know how we move, how, how we find uh, some common ground. But I know in your newest book, you're also talking about the importance of women and women's stories and the difference that makes it talk a little bit about this newest book, you know, what it's about, but why it's so, why it was so important for you to write it, especially now. Well, um, the first four books that I I wrote were um, really kind of power with strategies instead of power over strategies, but I never named gender because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a cross I didn't want to die on. Um, (laughs) And you just, you know, people have so much baggage when it comes to gender. And, and, And even now with this, this new book, people are like, well, do you think it's nature or nurture? And my whole thing is it's both. And we don't have the kind of time we need to go do a root cause analysis. We are in deep trouble now. Mm -hmm. We need more women in power. And so uh, I I wanted to test, you know, with territorial games, I had kind of articulated how men keep women out of power because that that is how to discriminate. So what I did was if you ask, you know, I understand how, women are kept out, but I did, I just can't grasp why. 
And now I think I understand. So here's, here's what I did is I asked women to tell me a story about the last time they were powerful. And, mm. and, uh, and I also asked them to rate themselves in zero to 10, how powerful are you? Well, your reaction probably will be, and your listeners as well, was what, what do you mean by power? And that's my reaction, which is, I don't know. What do you mean by power? Uh, and so these, these stories, and I ask men as well, they're different plots. So we share the same understanding of the competitive narrative, which is, you know, power is the ability to win. And that may be win a position. It may be, um, you know, you hit your first million dollars, whatever criteria you, you set for yourself. But when women told stories about power, we included this whole separate area of di a different plot. And so our, our stories tended to be, you know, I kept the power company from cutting my trees, mm. made them straighten their poles instead. <laughs> uh, and that made me, that's a great story. It's Robin's yeah, story. It's in, it's in chapter two. Um, and uh, uh, she climbed up in the tree and just wouldn't move until they left. So perseverance <laughs> is one of, the, one of the, the things that I've learned works. But here's the thing is, is that you end up with this, this uh, masculine, um, competitive narrative people think it's just one story. Mm -hmm. And so it always turns out to be that, you know, you should cut the trees because it's more expensive to, to write the poles. Mm -hmm. But when you have women's stories, we're, all, we're talking about really going out on a limb in order to protect um, uh, some people from being abused. That doesn't hmm. turn up on your return on investment, and yet right. it registers as power. And so one, I, one of the things I'm finding is that people with the collaborative narrative don't just want to win, but they want to protect. Uh -huh. And so one of the problems with, with a strictly uh, competitive narrative is that we're not taking care of the earth. We're not taking care of the refugees. We're, you know, and and uh, these masculine narratives about competitive have framed it so we think that harm is just the cost of doing business. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, these phrase, no pain, no gain. Mm. Or you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Well, that came from the French Revolution. And they were using it as a metaphor to justify murder. I am not kidding. That's where that originally came from. Break a few eggs to make an omelet. And I'm hoping that everybody, every time that comes out of their mouth, they're like, hmm, let's see. Oh, yeah. Is that really what I want to be doing? And so this, this book is about, um, uh, it, takes it through, takes you through the stories that women tell that men don't. Uh, it takes you through the, the idea that, that moral wins um, actually undercut competitive wins. Um, if we're going to, climate change is a wonderful example. We've, we've talked sustainability, but we haven't really created actions because that would feel like a loss. Right. And so what we need to do is we need to redefine uh, harm avoidance as something other than risk avoidance. Harm avoidance is a good thing. We right. need, it needs to be in our metrics. It needs to be on our, 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 uh, you know, on our perceptual field. It needs to be an important thing that gets rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and right now with the single narrative, the competitive narrative, uh, it doesn't get rewarded. And yet women are leaving jobs 
because of uh, moral injury, mm -hmm. because of this term moral distress. So if you hire me to do my job and you handcuff me to where I can't take care of my people, Right. Or I can't, you know, I can't make an exception. Empathy in action is almost always a deviations. Mm -hmm. So standard operating procedures, particularly in hospitals, actually punish empathy because it's a deviation from standard operating procedure. Wow. So we've got to learn how to redesign the way we keep track of who we are and, and how successful we are. And women have a talent for it. Yeah. We have, uh, 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 we have a larger circle of moral concern in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just leads to predictable problems where men are saying, well, you know, these are only people we need to protect. And uh, women are saying, no, that, that worker in China who's committing suicide because of working conditions, I want to protect mm -hmm. that person too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's time to redesign what power means um, in terms of the logistical design of systems so that women will be more attracted uh, to these top jobs. Because right now, a lot of times, it's not that we don't think we're qualified, it's just we don't want the hassle. Mm -hmm. it, it makes it meaningless. And so uh, I'm finding that, that having moral goals, uh, uh, companies are, are gonna have to provide the opportunity to do good as well as to do well if they're going to attract women and women increase the return on investment. We may decrease the risk, but only the stupid risk. Right. Um, you know, exactly. we, it, mm -hmm. definitely you have more women on a board, you'll have less risk, but it's because we're much less likely to, to risk doing harm in order mm -hmm. to, to win. Um, and that turns out to actually increase the total return on investment because we're not hurting people and they're not leaving because of moral distress. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about the one of, well, I guess it was one of the biggest uh, positions that I had in my career and I was being very successful and I had achieved a very high position. Uh, and at that level, I was the only female in that position with uh, three male colleagues. And I was very, uh, you know, I led almost 500 people. I was very concerned about getting them, you know, through, we were going through massive change. And what, what, when I look back at where things started to go wrong, because many things started to go wrong later, my husband helped me to clarify. He said, you, and, and he was not meaning this from the wrong perspective, but we've had many discussions about this. He said, you were not managing up. You were taking such good care of your people that you weren't taking care of yourself. And what he meant by that is you weren't sucking up the right way up to your male colleagues and your male boss. And it was, it's been a really interesting thing that I've, I've done a lot of reflection on over the years about that position. And I've had other scenarios where that's happened, where I didn't manage up. I was taking so focused on taking care of my people. And today I look at that and say, why did I think it had to be either or? Number one, um, why do I? Why does it look on the outside as if the one the one I chose was wrong? You know, because it wasn't wrong. It was no. right. Those people that worked for me still call me today. Yes. They'll call me years later when they have a problem and say, "I don't know how to solve this, Michael. Help me work through it. I know you'll help me." So I know that those things were all right, but it's interesting the dynamics that we do have in work environments where women will 
choose one or the other and think that if I, if I have to choose one or the other, I'm going to choose either climbing the ladder or saving all the puppies. That's what my husband calls it. Instead of saying, let's just embrace this and realize how it can, those well, pieces of yourself can work. And I, I would, I, I have a little problem with the phrase that, that, and I understand why you used it, sucking up, you know, yeah. as, as if yeah. managing up means sucking up. Right. Um, in, in my new book, uh, managing up means taking them on a field trip. Yeah. And so we're, 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 we're educating them. Yeah. Um, and it feels like we shouldn't have to, mm -hmm. uh, because taking care of your people is pretty obvious, but yeah. not to everybody. Yeah. Um, and, um, it doesn't show up on the metrics. So you mm -hmm. have this internal emotional, uh, uh, intuition that you just know it's the right thing. You don't need the metrics to know it's the right thing. It's yeah. turned out that way. But for some of these guys, all they can see is the numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're missing uh, a piece of the picture. And that's what we do when we tell the stories mm -hmm. of the people who we have helped and how they came back around and how that, you know, the long-term benefits. Um, so my, my hope for this new book is I want women to, not feel like they have to suck up to the guys uh, in charge, but to, to feel like they have an opportunity to educate the mm -hmm. guys in charge. Well, you know, what's funny too, is in reality, my numbers and metrics were better than my colleagues. I have no doubt. So I was having way better results, but honestly, I'm so glad you pointed that out because honestly, the reason, because my husband kept saying to me as you know, all along, he's like, are you managing up? Are you managing up? And I'm like, and I'm like, no, I'm doing what needs to be done. But in my heart, even today, obviously you, you pointed it out to me is that my reaction to that was I have to suck up to manage up. Yeah. And that means I have to make myself less than what I am. No and, more. We're not doing and, that, that shit uh -uh. anymore. No, I know. And I mean, I would never stand for that today. I would never stand for it myself. I'd never stand for it with people that work for me. Well, and we need to teach the young ones to, to yeah. not, to, because the gaslighting, is, is what makes you feel like, you know, you're having to suck it up. Um, yeah. uh, and, and the truth is that we have a piece of the picture that the guys don't have. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, you were talking about it starting to look like people are going to start to collaborate more. Well, we've reached the point of diminishing turn, uh, yeah. returns on what we can do with the competitive narrative. And now that, that it's failing and failing miserably, you know, ideally we could have done it a little bit before, but... <laughs> You know, we'll we'll take it. Um, so, do what you gotta do. women, women, uh, it it just my pet peeve is it women get called wishy washy because mm -hmm. we're balancing paradox. You are not wishy washy. You are not unfocused. You are multi focused. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, empathy is a deviation, and generosity is not a loss. Right. Um, uh, generosity gets punished as, you know, when you have a sh quarter's return on investment, um, it discourages generosity. But mm -hmm. uh, if you want the big bucks that happen when you actually create collaborative narratives, then you're going to have to revise how um, generosity, empathy, uh, and balancing paradox look like in your logistical systems. Oh, and then I just, I could talk to you forever. Um, I really, this is, I just, I just love it. I love everything you're doing. I love, I'm totally going to order your book the moment we're done. <laughs> I love 
I love the fact that you're discussing things that we all need to discuss, but I really also want to compliment you on your decision to write without fear of using the gender distinctions and being able to have us lean in. It doesn't mean men are bad and women are great. It means that there's, let's look at, let's just take an honest look at how we are different because until we can take an honest look at how we are different, how can we find any of those common grounds? And I have have a chapter, I have a chapter on the term sexual dimorphism. Um, all the different species have sexual dimorphism. You you can look at, you know, cardinals, male cardinals, but, but it's a survival reason. We're splitting the tension between a paradox so that we can survive. Um, and if, if we allow one side to make the decisions for all all the rest of it, it sounded good. Uh, but unfortunately (laughs) we're going to have to rebalance that. And, um, and women have to start believing that, uh, we can see things that are invisible uh, from a competitive narrative. And the thing that we can see coming up is harm. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're particularly good at avoiding harm and we need to stop being ashamed of that. I agree. God, I love it. This is fascinating. <laughs> you're, you're just so fun. I'm so glad you oh, so glad. Okay. I know we're, I'm just now I'm all fangirling. Now, I know we're going to have all of your contact information on our show notes, including links to all of your books, but just in case somebody's like, I need to find her right now. What's the best way for them to find and follow you? The best way is Annette at AnnetteSimmons.com, which should be easy to remember. And I just want to say, you know, we took the time to do an audio book of um, uh, drinking from a different well. And apparently that's what everybody loves. For one thing, you can go walkies and and listen to it. So I I did want to make a plug for that. That's on Audible. Oh, very good. I know I've been contemplating that with my books as well. (laughs) Just like one more thing. It's a big job. It's a big job. I love it. And you've already given us so much to think about, but do you have any last words of wisdom or pearls of advice for my listeners and viewers? Start trusting yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever you know somebody's trying to intimidate you or send, giving you gaslight, um, uh, number one, it it only works if we lose our shit or if we f- go silent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so staying sane um, and continuing and taking this person on a little field trip of another point of view instead of fighting about it, mm-hmm. actually inviting them in to look um, at another point of view is is. Uh, because we all have moral emotions. There's, there's not male or female. That's, that's, that's not split. What split is our perceptual field. And so trust yourself and start taking people on a little field trip about what you know is true. I love it. And then on a field trip, you're not forcing them to look only at one thing. You're giving them a whole new landscape to look at and see what's important to them. I love it. And thank you so much for being with us today. This has been amazing. I'm so glad to have had you on. I had a blast. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Shock Your Potential podcast. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com, including details on Michael's two best-selling books. Tell me more, how to ask the right questions and get the most out of your employees, and sales mixology, why the most potent sales and customer experiences follow a recipe for success. And as always, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like us today.